We are Victim of Illusion, you are listening to the tall, friendly, Atheist Dead podcast. And the next 30 seconds are brought to you by our album Invisible Light, available at our Bandcamp website. Welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad Podcast, and in this episode, I'm going to explain why Todd Friel reminds me why I love Mormonism. I used to love Wretched Radio and Todd Friel. The firebrand, pugnacious confidence of Todd Friel really g'd me up as a Christian. However, now... I actually think he's the embodiment of every single Christian troll you find yourself blocking on Twitter. It doesn't help that I also think he looks like both Joel Osteen and one of my former pastors. But this recent video of his, titled How to Persuade an Atheist Christianity is Real, reminded me of why I love Mormonism. Now, Damien, I hear you ask, are you a Mormon? No, I reply, but you said you love Mormonism. And I do. I love Mormonism because the story of how Mormonism began and the death of its founder, Joseph Smith, refutes almost every single Christian apologetic, especially about the resurrection of Jesus that is being used in modern discussion today. When Christians apply their apologetics to Christianity, wouldn't you know who won the pony? The Christian texts and by extension, the Christian story come out on top. Look, Jesus really is Lord and Saviour. But when those very same apologetics are applied to Mormonism, Christians suddenly resort to ad hominems. Joseph Smith was a convicted criminal. They ask why would anyone accept Mormonism when it is so patently ridiculous, while conveniently forgetting that Christianity makes many claims that could also be considered ridiculous. They claim that Mormonism is false because it is not widely accepted while conveniently forgetting that Christianity started off as a fringe Jewish movement itself. And then stridently point out that numerous claims of Mormonism with regards to history and archaeology have been debunked. All while forgetting that numerous points of Christianity have also been debunked. So now, let me take you through a number of claims that Todd Frill makes on this particular episode of his Wretched Radio YouTube show to demonstrate to you how he, 
as a representative of American conservative evangelicalism, is intellectually dishonest by selective use of these bad apologetics and how excitable Christians reaffirm the Christian faith while at the same time shutting the door on Mormons who are actually also Christians. What other holy book would be as honest as Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, if this event didn't happen, forget about it. I'm paraphrasing. One writer, in one chapter, in one letter, is meant to encapsulate the honesty of the whole Bible? Bro, not only I, but plenty of Jews and atheists will disagree with you on the point about Jesus and the honesty of Scripture. But let me guess, Todd wouldn't say that the Bible endorses sexism because, despite the clear fact that Paul, allegedly, in one verse, in one chapter, in one letter, writes that women should not even speak in church, let alone have leadership positions, that one verse in one chapter in one letter is not enough to establish the fact. What's good for the goose is good for the giraffe, you know? He then goes into a weird diatribe about babies and miracles and linchpins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin miracle in the Bible. Perhaps you're thinking, well, what about the incarnation? When Jesus Christ, God, became flesh, the problem with saying that's the linchpin miracle is you can't look at a baby and know that the miracle happened. But was Jesus God in the flesh? Because if Jesus is God's son, then technically he isn't God. Only in the Gospel of John does Jesus miraculously appear and equate himself with God. You would say, well, his life testifies that he is God. I would agree to that. In what way? Because in Mark, Jesus is adopted as God's son. And in Luke, Jesus is quoted as saying, no one is good but God alone, indicating a separation between him and God. It is only in John and in the Trinitarian sects of Christianity that Jesus is God. Oneness Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other Christian faiths that are either unitary or binary would disagree. So it's good of Todd to speak on behalf of all Christianity. But the incarnation cannot really be observed, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ can and it was. Which leads to the following questions. Who was the resurrection observed by? What records do we have of it? And how reliable are those records? Firstly, who was it observed by? From the best available documentation, it wasn't observed by the Jews of the time, that's for sure, and neither by the Romans. As far as we can tell, the only records written about Jesus' resurrection were written by the Jesus fan club. Now, that's not a death knell for reliability, but it's hardly an independent source either. This would be like accepting at face value 
Malcolm Muggeridge's extraordinary claims about Mother Teresa in Something Beautiful for God. Like, sure, there's a slim chance that Muggeridge is completely correct in his virtual beatification of Mother Teresa, but he's hardly an independent source. What records do we have? Well, in short, we have Paul's writings and the four Gospels. Now, Paul never met Jesus, and in his writings, Paul gives basically no details about Jesus' resurrection or crucifixion, except that he was crucified and resurrected. Paul doesn't even explicitly state who crucified Jesus. So Paul is useless in this aspect. So then we come to the Gospels. The first problem is that the four Gospel accounts cannot be literally reconciled. Again, this isn't a death knell in itself, but it does then refute the claims of divine inerrancy. Christians can't have it both ways. They can't claim the Bible is inerrant on one hand and then say on the other that there are discrepancies in the gospel accounts because this is what we would expect from ancient eyewitness reports. And how reliable are they? Not very. And I don't say this because I'm a po-faced atheist who hates Christianity and wants to see it destroyed. The fact of the matter is that at least three of the Gospels are rewrites of each other, which works against them being eyewitness accounts. They were written in a language that no one depicted spoke, and they are written in a way that rewrites Jesus into both Greek and Jewish hero mythotypes. So with that out of the way, let us now rephrase Todd Friel's statement to accommodate Mormonism. The discovery of the golden plates by Joseph Smith can be observed, and it was. We have direct testimony from Joseph Smith himself. We have Joseph Smith's father, who he told about the divine direction given by the angel. And we also have details of various people Joseph Smith hired to help him retrieve the plates, all of which is detailed by his followers. We also have the names and details of at least eight witnesses to the Golden Plates. Which leads to the question, would conservative evangelicals consider this proof enough for Mormonism? Your entire life, your eternity is riding on this miracle, but we need to do some math. How do we even know about this miracle? Well, there was a book written about it. It's called the Bible. And that means you and I are relying on some eyewitnesses to be telling the truth. At no stage do the Gospels say they were written by eyewitnesses on the scene. The closest we get is John's Gospel, where the author is saying that they're relaying what the disciple that Jesus loved told them. But then that means the author is, at best, relaying secondhand information. We also have Luke attempting to look like proper historiography. But in reality, he's essentially rewriting Matthew, who was rewriting Mark. What you are really relying on is one gospel that was rewritten at least twice. But first, 
Just because someone says they were an eyewitness does not mean that they were eyewitnesses. And here we come to a maxim of Christian apologetics. It is tacitly assumed that everyone involved in the early Christian movement was telling the truth, and there is no way they could ever possibly lie or be mistaken. But on the other hand, the beginning of every other religion involves people who are either gullible, lunatics, or con artists. I find it incredibly hard to get Christians to even consider the possibility that the gospel authors were not eyewitnesses. It is not a bad thing that a document was not produced by eyewitnesses. Lots of ancient history was written by non-eyewitnesses, and this does not diminish their truth value one bit. And as an example, my favourite history book, Vietnam, the Australian War by Paul Ham. Paul Ham wasn't a soldier, yet he writes a devastatingly brutal account of the atrocities and heartbreak of the Vietnam War. And second, and here's the kicker, I think is one of the strongest cases against the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. And it is that the disciples were Aramaic peasants of one sort or another, living in the backwater Hickville of Judea. And yet the Gospels are written in fluent, expert, structured prose Greek. We're not talking about just a conversational familiarity with the language. We are talking about the ability to use nuanced terms and to structure numerous stories in numerous cycles. So again, let's rephrase Todd Friel to accommodate Mormonism. Your eternal life rests on the miracle of the golden plates. And how do we know about this miracle? We're relying on some eyewitnesses to be telling the truth. Now, would you accept that as an argument for Mormonism? If not then why do you accept it as an argument for Protestant Trinitarian Christianity? How do we know you'll hear this slanderous accusation when you witness on university campuses while other books get people to believe a lie? There's people who have been charlatans. What about Jim Jones? Valid point, but that is why we need to dig deep into these eyewitness biblical accounts and what we are going to see is something unique from every other myth story. Let's dive in to our eyewitness accounts to see if indeed they are something that can be trusted. Todd Friel either doesn't know how mythology works or doesn't want to know how it works so he can stay comfortable in his theology. And it's because Christians assume the truth of the Bible that they believe they know everything there is to know about how ancient literature was written. This mindset has led many people to atheism simply because of its pig-headedness and intellectual dishonesty, one of those people being myself. So let's bust a few myths about myths, shall we? The written eyewitness accounts were in circulation much too early to be a myth. 
Let's compare that with the Roswell incident. In 1947, debris was found from an unidentified flying object. By 1978, roughly 40 years later, a whole story had begun to be spun about a government conspiracy covering up the existence of UFOs and aliens, which is unshakable even today. Or let's compare with Mormonism. Joseph Smith received his first vision in 1820. And by 1829, the manuscript of the Book of Mormon, the book that Smith wrote when he translated the Golden Plates from Reformed Egyptian to English, was complete, after which Moroni took the plates back to heaven. Furthermore, 15 people were allowed to eyewitness the Golden Plates while they were still on Earth. And then... The Book of Mormon was first sold in March 1830. Most scholars recognise a minimum 40-year gap between Jesus' death and the first Gospel of Mark being penned. So if 40 years is okay for Christianity to not be a myth, why is 40 years not okay for Roswell, and why is 10 years not okay for Mormonism for them not to be a myth? Again, Standard Christian apologetics is backed into a corner by virtue of its double standard. This is huge. Why? Because if they had been written much later, all that time people could have concocted stories. But when the eyewitness accounts were written near the event, there are people who could have busted the authors. Hey, he didn't rise from the dead. Everybody in Jerusalem knows that. But our eyewitness accounts were written close enough to the actual events. And guess what? Nobody said, mm, you're fibbing uh, more details. A myth cannot be developed when people who can refute it are still alive. Todd Friel and Christian apologists in general place a lot of weight in the idea that all it would take to stop Christianity would be a few people writing critical words against it. We're about to see that this hope is misplaced. Firstly, there is no difference between no one busting the first reports of Christianity and between every single document from the first century that busted early Christianity being destroyed or lost. Remember, the standards of documentary preservation and transmission were a lot different than what they are today. Papyrus wasn't either cheap or widely available. It's not like you could go to Officeworks and buy a 500-sheet ream of papyrus for $5. Papyrus didn't last long either, depending on the storage conditions, and the people who would have had access to material like papyrus would have been the scribes and the upper classes, not necessarily the plebs. So we already have these three factors working against us. But second, even if people busted the authors, this would not stop myths from spreading. For example, the idea that the Roswell incident involved a United States government cover-up of aliens on Earth has been debunked a hundred times over. Yet that idea still carries weight with the not insignificant portion of the United States population. The Book of Mormon has been debunked a thousand times over in a thousand different ways. And yet, 
there are almost 16 million people in the world today who affiliate with Mormonism. The Mormons as a business entity are one of the most prolific landholding ones in America, and about 10 years ago, Mormonism almost gave America a president. Why would anyone, especially Todd, believe that debunking Christianity would or should instantly stop it in its tracks? And just to add one more, the Prince Philip movement of Vanuatu. There are groups of people alive in Vanuatu today who believe that Prince Philip, the recently deceased consort to Queen Elizabeth II, is literally a god, and no amount of facts is going to stop them believing that, not even the death of Prince Philip himself. These next two points also help with comparisons with Mormonism. Many witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about AD 55, give or take. Paul hardly specifies any names. We don't have 500 accounts of one sighting. We have one account of 500 people tied to one sighting. But notice what Paul also says. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For what I received, I passed on. Now, Paul didn't discover the gospel by investigating facts. Paul received the gospel by revelation and scripture. In Galatians 1.12, Paul even says that he was not taught the gospel. He received it by revelation. 1 Corinthians 15.4 That he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The key word here is the Greek word kata, indicating a source. Paul's source that this happened was scripture. And remember, Paul didn't know the gospel by investigating facts or interviewing people. 1 Corinthians 15.5 He appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve. The word used for appeared is the Greek word ophthe, which is the very same word used in Matthew 17 to describe how Moses and Elijah appeared to the disciples. In other words, they're not looking at a real person, but they're looking at visions or apparitions or otherworldly figures. 1 Corinthians 15.7 Then he appeared to James and then the apostles. But hold on. Didn't Jesus appear to the apostles when he appeared to the twelve in the previous verses? Why is Jesus appearing separately to both Peter and James again when he already appeared to them when he appeared to the twelve? But what would Todd Friel say if we brought up the fact that we know the names and details of eight of the witnesses to the golden plates in Mormonism? Would he suddenly start wanting to know who specifically saw what? And if so, why wouldn't he apply that same standard to Christianity? And again, it's because of this maxim of Christian apologetics. Everyone involved in Christianity was telling the truth, and there is no way they would ever lie or be mistaken. But... Everyone else involved in every other religion were gullible, lunatics, or con artists. Many witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote Galatians in AD 49, and he certainly talks about Christ rising from the dead. And 15 people signed statements that they witnessed the golden plates that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. 
Does this mean there really were golden plates? A myth requires two or more generations to pass before it can take root. This is clearly incorrect. The Roswell myth had its roots in 1978 when Stanton Friedman interviewed Jesse Marcel, the farmer whose land it was that the unidentified flying object landed on. And by 1980, the book The Roswell Incident was published which then led to a 1991 book called UFO Crash at Roswell. We can see in two years that a myth had begun to take hold to the point that in 1994, the United States Air Force officially responded. Barely 20 years, let alone two generations. And this is in one of the most highly literate and scientifically progressive societies in history. Or... How about we compare the myth of Haley Selassie, or who you might know as Rastafari, the figurehead of the Rastafarian movement? Selassie was the emperor of Ethiopia between 1930 and 1974, and notably was a Christian. By the mid-1930s, people were proclaiming that Selassie, because he was a Christian emperor, was fulfilment of the scriptures of Revelation and Daniel. And by the 1950s, Rastafarianism was taking hold in both Ethiopia and Jamaica, so a literal transnational movement within 20 years. Or let's go to Mormonism. Joseph Smith claims the angel showed him the plates in 1823. In 1830, the first release of the Book of Mormon is sold. By the mid-1830s, the Mormons had become so big to the point that they were being persecuted in New York, and in 1844, their founder is killed, all up a tick over 20 years. So when Todd Frill says, A myth requires two or more generations to pass before it can take root, he's talking rubbish. The best scholarship suggests the Synoptic Gospels were written within 30 years of Calvary. The best scholarship in the eyes of conservative evangelical Christians. Yeah, great. But even then, that claim doesn't make sense. And for a number of reasons. Firstly, if Paul and the Gospels were written so close to each other, they should at least share knowledge of the same event. But Paul has absolutely no knowledge of Jesus wandering the earth with 12 guys, of being crucified by the Romans, of doing miracles, and of teaching things in parables. It's almost as if Paul is writing about a Jesus that the gospel authors know nothing about. And second, Mark makes much more sense when read as a response to Jerusalem being conquered, rather than as a prediction of it. And for example, look at the writing style, the structure, the name drops, etc. The people who wrote these accounts claim to have seen them. No, not at all. Not one bit. Todd, yet again, is talking rubbish. Luke even writes that he is not a witness and that he's simply writing an account for another person. 
anytime somebody makes up a myth, uh, yeah, well, you see, um, well, this guy kind of, well, he, he died and then he wasn't dead anymore. And they can be extremely vague. Why? Because you can't get busted. So Todd Friel has never, ever heard of Gone with the Wind, a detailed story about how a woman from Georgia survives the, the upheaval of her society in the wake of the Civil War. But let's look yet again at Mormonism. In the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith details a very elaborate account of the Lamanites, the Nephites, the Jaredites, and the Mulekites in pre-civilization America. Far from being a guy who goes, um, yeah, whatever, um, Smith really lays out intricacies, and I'll provide a quote shortly about how intricate those details were. But when you've got a lot of details, that tells the reader, huh, either they are a really intricate liar, or this really happened from... And again, let's go to examples like Rastafari, the Roswell incident, the Fatima Sun Miracle, or <laughs> my favourite, the Mormons. And yet again, I'll cite the maxim of Christian apologetics. Why is it that in Christian apologetics, every other religion is full of liars, but the early Christian movement just happens to be full of people telling the truth who couldn't or wouldn't possibly lie? First century fiction was not written in today's style of realistic narrative. Wrong. Firstly, look at the idea of euhemerization. Euhemerus literally wrote realistic backstories for deities. And Todd Friel is wrong again. Just look at the Aeonid, written by Virgil, that details Aeneas, who fled to Italy and got caught up in the Punic Wars. So he may have a point that ancient fiction wasn't written like modern fiction, but it's still fiction. By that token, Todd Friel would have to concede that the events described in the first science fiction novel, the first romance novel, and the first Greek myth were all historic because they weren't written in a style known to the time. Todd Friel also mentions the specificity of four accounts. Go ahead and read any one of the mythological accounts of some sort of divine human being and they do not have the specificity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in four accounts. Which is really one account rewritten as per the synoptic problem. He then cites Mark 48 and John 21.8. Mark 4.38, he cites, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The details, verse number to who that is an example is John 21, 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. The fact that they have details means they were there. Wow. So this means that no one has ever, 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 ever lied about details. But do extraneous details mean the author was telling the truth? To quote from the Book of Mormon team from the website bookofmormoncentral.org, and this is a little bit lengthy, but it bears listening to. All this geographical information not only adds another layer of complexity, 
but also strengthens the sense that the text describes a true historical reality. As John L. Sorensen pointed out in 2002, inconsistencies that might be expected of a fraudulent work are notably absent in the Book of Mormon. On the other hand, it seems unlikely that this consistency could have been obtained unless the authors had directly experienced some particular real-world setting, not an imaginary place. As a youthful traveller, long-time military leader, and trusted steward over a library of sacred records, Mormon certainly had intimate and direct experience with the landscape and information about it. Despite the destruction reported in 3 Nephi 8-9, he knew and recognised many of the lands, rivers, valleys, mountains, waters, and seas mentioned in his historical sources. Having worked on this record with his father, Moroni also went out of his way to testify that their record is true and that they lie not, from Moroni 10.26. So the Book of Mormon is clearly telling the truth, right? We have expert scholars who testify as such. But then, Todd Friel shoots his argument to pieces by quoting John 21.11 about the 153 fish. Or consider John 21.11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Who would know that there were 153 fish? Oh yeah, an eyewitness who is telling the truth. Without realizing that the number 153 was included for its theological and mathematical significance. The very detail that Todd Friel cites to prove that they were there as eyewitnesses is actually an example of myth-making and of theological significance. Next. The written eyewitness accounts are too self-debasing and counterproductive to be a myth. This is essentially a rewording of the criterion of embarrassment. No self-respecting mythmaker would make up a story that makes them look weak, stupid, or foolish, except that this is a feature of almost every myth. Let's look at Odysseus, a figure who had a wife and son, which means Odysseus was a real person because mythical people don't have families, remember? who was imprisoned on an island after a war in Troy, which really happened, and Athena hatches a plot to get him to return to Ithaca, a real place. Odysseus finally returns to Ithaca disguised as a beggar and enters a competition to win his wife back. Or if you want the ultimate in embarrassment, let's look at the cult of Attis and Cybele. Plutarch describes an annual parade of men running down the street dressed in women's clothing cutting off their penises. If that is not the ultimate in embarrassment, I don't know what is. But the problem here is that the criterion of embarrassment is used only in the field of Christian apologetics, and no one uses the criterion of embarrassment to prove the claims of other religions, otherwise they would have to accept 
that this penis-cutting cult of Attis and Sibel is true. Would you describe yourself as a buffoon? And yet, that is exactly what we read all throughout the New Testament. Authors of eyewitness events made themselves look foolish because they had actually behaved foolishly. Why would anybody who is desiring to trick people? Yet this is exactly what we see in politics today. Case in point, Boris Johnson, and one only needs to see his Peppa Pig speech video to know that he presents himself as a buffoon. Scott Morrison, Prime Minister of Australia, has perfected the daggy middle-aged dad stick. Bob Hawke, one of the greatest Prime Ministers of Australia, tapped into the larrikin element of the Australian psyche very, very successfully. So self-effacement is a great way to engender yourself to people. And Joseph Smith portrays himself as a man who struggled constantly with the divine revelations given to him. At one point, he even gets rebuked by Moroni for not trusting his commands. Why would anybody who is desiring to trick people or to have them send in their tithes so that they can receive some sort of tchotchke so that they could fly around on a private jet? Okay, I'm getting my centuries confused, but you get the point. A charlatan tries to make himself look wonderful. The eyewitness accounts you read in the New Testament. Because the Gospels were written to transmit values in a time when religion wasn't the vehicle that it is today that people used to get rich. Whereas today, prosperity preachers don't really preach the Gospel. They preach a lifestyle and blessing reward system. They didn't look so stellar. And this is classic in myth-making. If we look at the story of Odysseus, we see that Odysseus's crew were contained in 12 ships. 12! What a surprise! We also see that Odysseus's crew were silly, fickle, and prone to making bad decisions that they need the hero to get them out of. For example, Odysseus takes a nap during a sea voyage and the disciples need help because strong winds get them into trouble. Does that sound familiar? So anyway, my point with all this is threefold. That Christians, especially conservative evangelicals, apply selected or even boutique apologetics in a very selective manner to make the case that Christianity is not false. Those same apologetics they use to claim victory for Christianity, they suddenly refuse to apply to Mormonism, and even when they do examine the claims of Mormonism, the reasons they use to dismiss Mormonism, they then don't apply that same criteria back to Christianity. So, why do I love Mormonism? Because Mormonism does more than I ever could to highlight how intellectually dishonest a lot of Christian apologetics is. And I have to thank Todd Friel for reminding me.